Hello and welcome to A Mighty Blaze Podcast, part of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze is your online and audio destination for the very best interviews with blockbuster authors, debut writers, and everyone in between. Zoe Sivak is fascinated by the hidden pockets of history particularly the often untold stories of women and people of color. Her debut novel, Mademoiselle Revolution, delves into the Haitian and French revolutions through the eyes of a biracial daughter of a rich plantation owner and an enslaved woman. She visited A Mighty Blaze to talk with fellow historical fiction author Julie Gerstenblatt about the book's dual French and Haitian settings how Zoe went about researching these very complicated events, and how the small details can make all the difference when framing and creating a story. So settle in and enjoy the conversation as I pass the blaze torch to Julie and her historically-minded guest, Zoe Sivak. Hi, everybody. I am so excited to welcome you to the Zeitgeist on a Mighty Blaze. I am your guest host tonight, Julie Gerstenblatt, and I am here with debut author Zoe Sivak to discuss her powerful historical novel, Mademoiselle Revolution. Welcome, Zoe. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Julie. I'm really excited. I am really looking forward to this. So I'm going to do a quick bio, and then we'll get started with our conversation. Uh, Zoe Sivak advocates for diverse stories and characters in historical fiction. In her writing, she strives to explore famous male figures through the lenses of the women beside them, women who could have existed even if history left them behind. When not engrossed in historical research, Zoe is pursuing both her Juris Doctor and a Master of Public Health in Philadelphia. This is all very impressive. Thank you. Um, So Zoe, um, Mademoiselle Revolution, which I'm gonna hold up here, is a tour de force. Right, so. Look, hold it up, let's show everybody. This beautiful also, cover, and also that I am wearing the colors of France and the oh, Revolution. I and love it. I loved the that people would wear the little colored um, kind of rosettes on their clothing during the Revolution. So I picked my red, white, and blue tonight for that. you. Instead of a cockade, you're just like you know what I'm doing head to toe, which they would do. <laughs> they would literally dress in red, white, and blue. They're just like no one's cutting off this neck. No, no, please. <laughs> so can you, I felt like this is a combination of dangerous liaisons and Les Mis and all of those French stories with that drama, but also a different background and a beginning that I think few people knew of, including you up until a certain point when you learned about this um, time in the history of the Haitian Revolution. So can you tell us a bit about the book for those who don't yet know the summary or like an elevator pitch? No, of course. So let me just brush off my pitch. So (laughs) uh, I I I will generally say that this story fits in the connection between revolutions. Um, And so we begin with the Haitian Revolution, which on an island known as Saint-Domingue, it is now known as Haiti. Um, and we, our protagonist is a very beautiful, very privileged biracial woman named Sylvie, Sylvie who is the daughter of a coffee planter uh, and an enslaver. Um, so she is the product of slavery, um, the very common byproduct, which is assault. Um, and so we have an island filled with people like her, and yet they're relegated to a weird in-between space. Um, but she wants what that lifestyle can afford her. Um, but until um, the, you know, we'll, we'll call it the execution um, of a very prominent real world revolutionary who was a man that could have been her own brother um, and who kind of came from the background just like her. Once he was ex- executed, she realized that the life she was living was one that it's like moving on sand, right? It wasn't stable and it wasn't humane and it wasn't ethical. Um, she couldn't profit anymore. So she flees to France looking for safety. Um, not knowing that revolution uh, was was omniscient uh, in the 18th century. And so she 
basically has to decide if she wants to survive, if she wants to thrive, um, or if she wants to basically rise again on a, you know, the expression I use is on a kingdom of bones. Um, and so she, uh, she, she has to make some very hard choices. Um, I found that first section, part one of the book that takes place in Haiti, so interesting in a way that goes beyond, you know, what I think so many of us had learned about um, the history of slavery, the history of revolution, um, and the links between this Haitian revolution and the awakening to a consciousness of freedom that then spread to France because um, because it, Haiti, you know, at the time, Saint-Dominique, I can't say it because I'm terrible with my French accent, as I was telling you before the show, was, was French territory. So there was this natural connection between the two places. Um, but for Sylvie, it's so personal mm -hmm. and watching her at the beginning as this you know living this life of leisure and getting pearls and mm -hmm. thinking about who she's going to marry mm -hmm. and being comfortable really comfortable living in the house um with her father who um raped her mother or maybe had a relationship with her but we you know the mother is has died and she's living with this sort of adoptive french white mother mm -hmm. um it's really complicated mm -hmm. and i feel like there would be a lot to unpack in therapy <laughs> had yeah. she have if she did if she didn't have to constantly worry for her own life yes. her own liberty and all that mm -hmm. um and i think that the awakening and realizing she has two half brothers one who is very much on her side and you know in this with her and one who really turns on her mm -hmm. As revolution is um, eminent, so I was wondering how you put this character together, and what's, um, you know, how did you find her? How did you discover her, and what parts of her resonate with you? So she, um, you know, the first thing I'll say is that we are presented a very specific picture of what uh, our past looks like, right? Um, and it's oftentimes very whitewashed, uh, sometimes literally and sometimes figuratively, as in we kind of remove the, the gruesomeness, we remove the humanity, we remove the diversity, um, because we think we get this idea that this is what the world looked like. Sylvie isn't unique. Nothing about her was unique. The, I mean, huge swaths of the United States, I mean, the United States had people just like her, hate, you know, hate all throughout the islands, wherever there was enslavement, assault and trauma and mixed race people would follow. Um, so she wasn't unique. Um, I think that's kind of the first thing I wanted to make sure I hammered home when I was developing this character is that I didn't want her to feel, you know, special because she wasn't. Um, I think the second part is that um, realism grounded me a lot. Um, I think we're all eager because we're all people of, of compassion and kindness, at least in the spaces that I operate. Nobody wants to think that, oh, if I lived in the 18th century, I would enjoy the fruits of the labors of enslaved people. No, of course you would. We all would. Nobody wants to be working in a field. Nobody wants poverty. Nobody wants that. And it's okay to acknowledge that reality because if we don't, then we're ignoring ourselves and our history as a people. And so I was like, well, realistically, she would be in a place of immense privilege. And the vast majority of mixed race people, if they were the product of, of such, a, such an assault, they were freed immediately, unlike in the United States. In Haiti, you were freed. It was very, very, very much expected for your father to free you. And then if you were a boy, had Sylvie been born a man, um, they would have been given ample property. Uh, they would have been sent off to France for an elite education. Uh, and then they would have come home, um, most likely been either taking the, up the, the plantation business themselves or get in their own property and amass their own slaves and their own you know, entrepreneurial spirit. Um, which is really uncomfortable. And, and it seems like how much dissonance there must be. And there is, <laughs> there is so much dissonance and that's super uncomfortable. And that's something that as a mixed race person, I deal with knowing that I come from a place of that privilege and also that burden um, without being like, woe is me, I'm mixed. Like mm, it's, it's more that we are both a symptom of white supremacy 
while also benefiting from it. And so I wanted a character who existed at that intersection, like so many women, so many examples throughout our history have. Um, and so to create Sylvie was to create basically a woman that, that shared so much of my identity, maybe not personality, uh, you know, I would have reacted in different ways. Um, Sylvie probably survived in ways that I probably couldn't have. And she probably made decisions that I don't think I could have made. Um, but, you know, in the end, you come up with this woman who's just a woman um, who had no choice in, in how or where she was formed. Um, but she does have a choice over her future um, and over her legacy and over her complicity in mass crime. So then we have her. Um, when she then goes to France and thinks, oh, phew, I fled all that terror. <laughs> me. Um, you know, she, she gets into society that is um, wealthy and white. She worries more about her color um, yes. in France. Um, and I hadn't thought about powder in the way that all those people put mm -hmm. on that powder and using powder really particularly to kind of hide her freckles or her color right. and feeling like to fit into French society, she has to be one thing. Um, but she finds herself in these interesting relationships that are social and political, which is why, by the way, we're talking with you on the zeitgeist because this book has sort of everything that the zeitgeist talks about politics culture sexuality which we will get to race um and all of the belonging family and everything that's um of the now you talk about 200 plus years ago um so she gets involved in um these intricate relationships with robespierre which, you know, if he, you brought him to life from my history books from like middle school in a really, I had no idea what his voice, I now picture him, what his voice is like and his, and his hair and everything about him, his stature. Um, and his, I don't know, what do we call her? Lover, girlfriend? Mistress. Mistress. I don't know if it was mistress. Or wife for friend. We don't know for sure. Yeah, we don't know. For sure. But. So can you talk about Robespierre and Corneli and then where Sylvie fits in? Love it. Um, so again, I'm grounded. Uh, uh, I'm a really by the book type of person. Uh, when I write historical fiction, if there's a deviation, it's because either I was pushed into a corner um, or it's necessary for more contemporary reasons. Um, but with this book in particular, um, there wasn't really anything that I tried to stray from. It seemed pretty clear to me that he had some type of liaison with Corneli. It seemed pretty clear to me. Um, you know, some people would call her, you know, his wife, um, you know, when he died, she was referred to as the widow Robespierre um, because she always wore black. Um, so, you know, I, I, I took it as I saw it and, uh, and made her at least his mistress. Um, I think had they been married, it would have been more obvious. But um, I also wanted to be realistic in the way that a lot of people, you know, they get this response where they're like, oh, I wish that we had stayed on Haiti. I would have been so interested. And I would have been interested too. I am not the voice of, of an enslaved black Haitian people completely decimating, and that's just, that's what happened, this, this infrastructure, uh, and then rebuilding a black democracy. Not my space. Secondly, Sylvie would have been killed in an incredibly gruesome way, and the story would have been very short. And so there goes your heroine. <laughs> there goes our heroine. So it's like I I hear that I hear that desire, but there are wonderful Vanessa Riley. I mean, there's other wonderful authors who touch on the Haitian Revolution, and so I encourage you to go to that space. But I know mine, and I wanted to. The whole point of this novel was to tie these two worlds together. So we once we do go to France, and now we're oh I know him and I I know her. Mm -hmm. um, it was about, you know, finding all of this contemporary information that I could about who these people were. And there's such a plethora of information. I mean, Robespierre, yeah, he had a tenor. It was a, wasn't like incredibly high-pitched voice. Think like an Adam Levine, like a just, you know, what, such an odd option. But that's, I mean, I'm thinking, who's a tenor? Adam Levine. Um, so, you know, think of, you know, a slightly, slightly higher-pitched voice. He wasn't particularly tall. He was rather short, I think like 5'4". Um, he wasn't ugly, wasn't particularly good-looking. Um, he had some pox scarring, just like everybody did. Um, he did wear a wig, which was quite not the fashion at the time. It was mm -hmm. on the way out, but he was a bit he was a more conservative kind of guy in terms of the way that he looked. Um, and am I allowed to curse on this show? I mean, sure. It's a direct quote, and that's the only reason why. Okay. So, 
my favorite quote that I think gets at the essence of who Robespierre is, is it's by Danton. If anybody knows who Danton is, he's kind of one of the big three. Yes, you can curse on the show. <laughs> Sorry, the blurb. Um, oh, so, Jane Roper. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. And so she, um, and so he says this famous quote, and he says, Robespierre simply can't fuck, and money scares the hide off of him. That doesn't that tell you so much oh, about yes. how he was viewed? He was he was probably ridiculed by those, but but people had to keep him in their sights and keep him close because he did come to power. I'd also argue that Robespierre is I don't want to say a victim because he's complicit, but he was also kind of the last man standing. Mm -hmm. um, he chose his friends wisely and his enemies even more wisely. Mm -hmm. um, and the last thing I'll mention about Robespierre to address your question is women were obsessed with him obsessed imagine a harry styles concert that's what government in paris looked like mm. sounds funny women were giving him locks of hair screaming over the balconies the, these contemporary accounts women were pledging their eternal soul blood on letters like just in love with this guy who had zero charisma intense political acumen but he, he wasn't particularly charming but people were obsessed women were obsessed and um i was just like you know, you've got to make this, okay, let's bring him to life. And so I felt like I had a lot of material. Uh, oh, to, yeah. Cornelie, less so. But I knew that she was a big sister. I knew that she was an artist. I knew that, you know, what type of woman would Robespierre keep close? A woman with a great deal of sense. And somebody who could provide him with uh, intuition and intelligence. Um, and so she also just came birth naturally. And then, you know, Sylvie, seeing both of them and being enraptured by their sense of self and not really understanding that like you can be friends with people. So she's just like, oh, well, I have to sleep with them both. That was a long answer to your question. That is great. Um, in terms of her bisexuality, which you never label and never name, because I believe you feel there is no need to do that. It's just her being her exploring whatever she's interested in and whoever she's feeling close to at the time. Um, but picking them particularly as a couple and as like the power couple at the time yes, yes. puts her in an interesting position where she has to make um, decisions. I thought um, later on, I don't think it gives anything away to say that what Robespierre kind of is using her for is is in part her race and who and her history of coming from you know enslavement or not that she was but that her mother was. yeah yeah um so, so uh, yes um to all of those things i mean regarding the bisexuality uh, the main reason why i don't talk about it is because it didn't exist as a construct mm -hmm. um i i think and, and i will hammer this point home i mean i'm a bleeding heart liberal and as snowflakey as it gets right i'm a queer uh you know a bisexual mixed race woman I, i'm here for all of the language and frameworks and, and philosophies that we develop as we as we grow as a people um but sexuality is mostly cultural um, in, in terms of like when you zoom out and it was developed in a, as something that we would recognize within the past 150 years or so. Um, so I, I argue that it's important to not ascribe our modern framework of like chaotic bisexual. Like she's not, that's not, you know, it was well understood that women slept with women. I mean, the jokes that they would make about, you know, you go off to, you know, your private boarding school. I mean, that's what you did. Uh, romantic friendships were incredibly, I mean, that's why, you know, we, what we have such a passion for Emily Dickinson, right? Because that's one that we know very, you know, in more detail, but this is also, that's very common. The expectation was simply that you got to nip it in the bud when you're married, or if you're going to do it, you know, your, your husband has to be comfortable with it and you have to keep it private. Um, it was more about fitting into the societal roles of say mother and wife and husband and father. Um, sexuality wasn't so inherently tied to those things. Um, those were more, you know, father and mother and, and husband and wife. I mean, those were duties as opposed to like, there was no sexual identity. Those things didn't exist. So I, and I personally have no interest um, personally, and they have their space. Please trust me on that. We need books and literature and media that richly examines the, sometimes the agony of our sexuality. But I'm not interested in inserting that where maybe most likely wouldn't have existed, especially given that she was pretty much wholly independent. I mean, her brother was, Lord knows that man has, has slept with men and, and Lord knows he would not care 
he did not care what his sister was doing. I mean, greater things were happening on yeah. the horizon than who we were sleeping with or who we loved. Um, it was also a very liberal time period. I mean, very liberal. So yeah. I, you know, I'm not, you're never going to see me write something where, you know, I, you know, my character is agonizing. Oh, oh, but I love a woman. And I'm like, that's just not, now madly in love can't marry or be with, that's a discussion. Mm -hmm. But like, the attraction itself, I don't think that there would have been as much infrastructure internally to like break it down in the way that we would have as we were growing up. Um, I feel like in terms of her development, Sylvie's development, her evolution is a kind of revolution. So in terms of the title, um, how do you, did you have that? Did you know from the start that Mademoiselle Revolution would be it? No, no? I feel like, I mean, anybody who, uh, most folks, I feel like that, that are so fortunate as to get a book published. I mean, <laughs> normally it's just your, your team throwing titles at you yeah. and you say no. Um, I, you know, originally the title was, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm allowed to say it, it was Mistress of Terror. Um, and they, they didn't like it because it didn't invoke France. And they wanted to be in book France. And so, you know, I, I had so many, like the reddest street in Paris, the bluest street in Paris, the indigo girl, like all these lovely, right, lovely names. They didn't get at it. Yeah. And I was so frustrated. I was you know, frustrated with your team. You're like, all right, you're giving me, what is this? And like, I don't like these. And you don't like mine. And, and then they say, what about Mademoiselle Revolution? I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> you know, it was so, per I, we were squealing because we all knew we hit it. Like, you know. Yeah. You know, sometimes you don't have that moment. Sometimes it's truly like it's a toss up and you're not sure. It it evokes not only the time period, mm. how she sees herself, but the theme of revolution, yeah. personal revolution, uh, yeah. interpersonal, intrapersonal, societal, um, and how thematic um, revolution is to the story and how it becomes, you know, she has her own, as you say, evolution to become, you know, coming from just your standard mixed race girl. Um, with all of the the pain and dissonance that that comes with to somebody who regains her agency, autonomy and and integrity. Yeah, I think it it's perfect and it also does without having to say France, you know the word right. mademoiselle does all right. of that work for you. Exactly. Um, you you kind of touched on this a little bit. You talk about not rewriting history when in your um, bio and stuff, but rather restoring it. So can you explain more about that idea? Of course, I, you know, I stumbled across, across that kind of expression, um, you know, early on as you're, you know, trying to develop yourself, you've got your agent, the book is in the works, like, you know, you have to kind of make it, what's your shtick, right? Yeah. And I, I knew what I was writing and I knew the things that I would always want to write. Um, and, and just how passionately I view history and just how much we've let all of these people down, um, you know. We're I'm, and I'm not always coming from a place of just like that. History is written by the powerful, and you know we're actively silencing. A lot of it's indifference. That's a much more effective tool. If you don't care about it, it's not that people were actively like, I never want to read a story about a black woman. It was more just like I don't care to. Mm. And 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 that in my mind is worse. Um, and so I, I think that for me, it was about, well, I want to restore that diversity because we have these visions of, you know, I was growing up and I, oh my God, anything, anything taking place like pre 19th century, oh, I was on it. I like butter on toast. I wanted that so much, but I was like, oh, it's not historically accurate. There are no, you know, black people didn't appear until 1965. Yeah. You know, it's, you, you just have this idea because that's what the media presents you. And then every time you try to suggest diversity, it's just like, you're, you're just, you're trying to wokeify history. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not interested in doing that. Specifically, for example, when I'm talking about sexuality, I'm not trying to wokeify history. They don't have language for queerness and they didn't have queer culture in the way that we would understand it. Um, and so I don't touch it. Um, and then same with race. There were black people in France. That's why they had to make interracial marriage illegal in the 18th century, because white women were marrying black men and white men were threatened by it. Um, like, you know, this stuff exists. I, I don't have to invent anything. So I'm, I'm not rewriting it. I'm restoring it. I'm trying to put it back in its place so that when little girls like me are walking through, you know, the shelves and they and they're looking for you know, amongst the sea of World War II white women, no offense to everyone's favorites, um, they, they deserve to see 
people of, of various backgrounds. And it's not always race. It's, I mean, people with disability, people with people with different sexualities and different backgrounds. I mean, all of these things play such a big role in what our history is because we've been the same for 300,000 years. We've been the same people. Um, and so I think it's just so important that when we write historical fiction that we tell the truth. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Hello, Writerish Podcast listener. I'm Daniel Ford, co-host of the Writer's Bone Podcast and founder of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. At least one person that I know of has called me the Norman Lear of podcasting, but I'm here to talk about our flagship, Writer's Bone. We're a literary podcast that believes in the power of the written word. My co-host, Stephanie Ford, and our Friday morning coffee host, Caitlin Malkwee, believe that storytelling can excite us, educate us, and at its best, unite us. Our mission is to promote authors of all backgrounds, races, creeds, and experiences. Since 2014, we've had the privilege of talking to bestsellers, debut authors, screenwriters, actors and actresses, and so many others that embrace creative endeavors. We hope you'll subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, because we have no intention of stopping anytime soon. And our simplest, perhaps our best advice, keep writing, everyone. And I think that it's also so much more interesting to read about and to bring to life stories that have been overlooked, forgotten, and not told. And it seems like such a simple thing. I'm just going to tell it. It hasn't been shared. Um, And yet it's really, I'm going to say it, revolutionary, even though it's such a tacky joke. No, puns write themselves. Okay. (laughs) So in terms of doing the historical research, you know, I, I know from talking to you before the show that you are, you lived in a, in a French house in college where you spoke French and that French culture is kind of like you're, you're into it and you've been into it for a long time and history is interest has been interesting to you for a long time. But what kind of research did you have to do for this book? And as a historical fiction writer myself, did you find, do you find that you like read a ton and then got most of it? Did you um, focus on one thing over another? Did you get to go to France and like do those? I've been fortunate enough to, I actually spent like a month there. Um, I was fortunate. So I, you know, and again, I think Paris specifically, and that's why I don't spend too much time waxing poetic about the Parisian streets, just because that's a privilege in and of itself. We cannot think of Paris immediately, immediately think of Paris. Not everybody can do that. I say, think of Seoul, South Korea, or think of Hong Kong, or, or, you know, think of Johannesburg. Not everybody can do that for places that aren't the centers of Western culture. Right. We, and, and regardless of where people live in the world, they can know Paris. And so I didn't and didn't have to bog myself down too much beyond the the physicality of it. Like, I, you know, I have my maps and lots of maps of, uh, of Paris that I'm, I'm combing through, making sure that I get the because arrondissement hadn't been invented mm-hmm. yet. We, they changed the yeah. system several times. So, you know, I had to get that right. But the things that I research, it's because it's significant to the story. Um, I try not to spend too much time, and I would if I were given the liberty. Um, so I, I try to con- restrain myself to focusing on things that would this person have cared about it? Um, what I normally say is, do you think critically about your bra? I don't when I wear it. Why do we give the same fetishization and focus on somebody's underwear just because it's from a few hundred, just because it's different? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I find that, I mean, it's, it might be an odd example, but I, I find that, I mean, it's not what you're doing, like where we're talking on and on about their stockings and their stoves and their petticoats and, uh, and I'm like, yeah, it's interesting. You know, is it whalebone or is it wood? Like I can, I can talk about it, but it's like, who's not going to be thinking critically about it. That's not right. That's not what character is made no, of. Right. These are just people. I don't think critically when I shake someone's hand, she wouldn't have thought critically when she curtsied. So the research that I do, it's about the beats. She's going to think critically about the fact that the Louis is different. It's now the Asinia. So she's going to think about money. Mm-hmm. She's going to think about her title because she 
has to remove the de in her name because it looks aristocratic. Yes, I loved that. Right? And so those are little things. And that's yeah. why and I would never have known that. It have feels to drop the like one of the first things she's told when she gets to France and uh -huh. says, I'm Sylvie de Rossier. I can't okay. say her last name, but and then they say, Drop the duh. <laughs> yes, drop the uh, it's a little gauche, like yeah. don't use it. right? But it but that meant more to you, right? As a reader, yeah, because it felt like she cares, I care. It's less you're not, it's not going to resonate with you too much about them, like what type of tea they're drinking, like it, it just, yeah. Not. Um, so that's how I frame my research because it a it controls me from going on and on. And also, I think just the last thing I'll mention is every book demands something different. I am fortunate enough that I, you know, I'm, I'm writing another book at the moment and I spent extensive time in the area where it's based. And, you know, I, I can think about all of these things because I'm, but I, sometimes the issue becomes there is so much information. There's so much information that it's, you have to stop. So I think every book, every project demands a slightly different flavor of research and its own constraints in the areas where you're gonna be super accurate and the places not where you're gonna be inaccurate, where you're just gonna be vague. Um, I, and so you're not gonna, I'm never going to be the, the person where I'm just gonna go on and on and on about the type of shoe they're wearing or the if it informs the scene, I'll talk about her Chopin or Chopin's, yeah. I'll talk about them because if she's tripping because the leather is hard because she hasn't worn them yet, mm -hmm. then that's gonna be relevant to her thought. But if she's just right. walking out, you're not thinking critically about your your Sperry's or your Birkenstock. Yeah. So, so I try to, if it's going to meaningfully connect you to the character right. rather than connect you just to a, a space and time, th that's kind of where I put most of my eggs. Got it. And in terms of developing the story, this mm -hmm. seems to, to me, it's like you were knew you were going to be going from Haiti to France, and you knew that if you wanted Robespierre to die in whatever year, that this was kind of yeah. going to be the timeline. Spoiler: so, People can't know he dies. Yeah. People can't know. <laughs> right? Oh, spoiler <laughs> alert! <laughs> they kill him, <laughs> and like everybody else too, they kill him. All. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah, then there's this guy Napoleon come. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. right. Um, so you knew, you know, you knew you were working within this time frame, which I think is really helpful probably as, as an author to not be like, where is this going to end? Right. Um, but then within that, how much are you a plotter versus like a pantser? Yeah. Right. I have, I, and I think for me, it shows growth and for, uh, other writers, it, it's it completely relevant behind how I write. It has nothing to do with other, any person's kind of success or failure or whatever. But um, for me, it has shown growth that I'm much more of a plotter than I was. Because in the beginning of my writing journey, I was much more of a pantser in that I just kind of knew where I wanted things to go. And I had to kind of sit every time a new chapter because I wouldn't know exactly. And that kind of just kind of told my weaknesses in regards to story building. Um, and so for me, and I don't think I'm going to develop much more beyond this because I think this is where I'm going to be comfortable. I'm not going to um, kind of plot within a chapter. The chapters in and of themselves, I just need to know what happens, mm -hmm. right? That That's all I need to know. But I do plot, um, courtesy of my friend who shows me the wonders of Excel, um, I do do some plotting on a timeline, especially where you've got a lot of time. Like mm -hmm. we are like a, a lot of um, the dates are very specific and I know like we have them all, um, which can be kind of exhausting when yeah. I know where someone's going to be in Italy or I know exactly where they're going to be in Germany, you know, on this month, like that's, you know, and that's where you have to make some decisions. Are you to, going to keep that? Does that you, matter? What right, does it matter to that of being exactly. that accurate? Yeah, exactly. So that's where I would say, you know, there's, you, you're, that's where you're, the, the balance is coming, but generally it's, it's, I know what happens in each chapter. And so I can, I can, I can plot that out, but within a chapter, I'm much more, I'm generally, you know, I'll make notes if I'm like, oh, I definitely want to see the scene. I also do a lot of, most of my pantsing is going to be like, I'll write whole scenes because I think of them and I'm like, I'll do improv in my room. I do a lot of improv <laughs> and I, it, I know it's exactly what you think. You it's you're, like. you're acting it out. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cause if I'm like, I just don't know, you know, I know the character so well. So if I'm like, you know, I'm with Sylvie and I'm, I know Cornelie and so she would be you know, what would she be, they're, they're by the tulips, she's cutting them, what, you know, what would she be saying? What would Sylvie be saying? And so I just do a bit, and then normally I get some really good lines out of it. Um, ex-theater kid, hello. Yeah, I was just gonna um, ask you, 
<laughs> you come from a theater background? Oh no, I did. I did a little theater and a little film, and then uh, and then I was like, oh, I gotta go back to school. But I uh, I do I I love it, and I find that because I'm I'm honestly much more cinematic in the way that I think mm. and the way that I write. Um, I don't. <laughs> everyone gives me a hard time. I don't like narrative, which is literally what a book is. So I, you know, in a perfect world, everything would just look like a screenplay. Right. <laughs> but 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 I've gotten better. But um, you do have those kinds of you know set setting and exactly. scene. Yeah. Um, it does feel cinematic, and so I can see where that. And you and and also when you do improv, like if I'm looking for you know how what would the emotional reaction be? I also like well, what do my hands just do? Mm. You know, it, what is my urge as I'm saying this line? Like, you know, it, do I want to curse? Do I want to, do I want to throw something? Do I want to just rest my head against the door? Like, what do you, what do you want to do? And then I'm like, I have blocking work. <laughs> I picture you throwing yourself around. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's like, I just find it's really useful. Um, and mm. I'm able to, because sometimes it's hard to, as you're just writing dialogue, I'm like, well, what, what is their, what are their bodies doing? Because you, you need that. Um, mm. yeah. That is cool. Um, and then speaking of school, you are doing a million things. So can you tell us how you balance and what it's all kind of for in terms of, do you want to be, I think you want to be all of these things, the writer, the lawyer, the civic, you know, person, but like that, what are these components doing for you and how do they complement each other? Right. And to be transparent, I did actually just graduate a few. I thought so. I saw Instagram in your purple. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> awesome. Like, I was like, I'll, I'll just, I'll just keep my bio. Some degree. I'll just keep my bio the same and just keep saying, I'm still in school. I'm still in school. No. But um, so I did, you know, I just finished like my co-op over the summer. And so I am actually done. And, and Congratulations. Thank you to my professional life. But um, I, you know, and I, I don't want to practice law. That's something that I've, I've kind of known for a while. It's I, I do like hospital administration and policy, mm -hmm. um, but it comes from a very similar passion, um, a love of, of femininity and womanhood um, and autonomy and agency. Um, those concepts and themes are extremely important to me. Um, and they kind of connect the writing and the and the kind of more science focused public health, um, you know, health administration space. I, I would say that I, I love healthcare so much, um, but I knew I would have felt starved if I didn't have some form of artistic. Cause like I said, I love that. Like I like being like working as an extra. I, I, I love doing like theater and I, I love doing all of those things. I loved drawing and I loved writing, um, but I'm not somebody who does things just for the sake of it personally. Um, as much as I know everybody has their own kind of framework when they're writing, you know, are they writing for themselves? Are they writing for to get published? Are they writing for um, a loved one? Um, you know, for me, I, the point is that I wanted to share this message. It's kind of inherently, you know, ego, you know, egoist, um, kind of inherently, um, you know, narcissism. I mean, is that what art is, though? It's like that you want to share this framework and this this message. I know it. I already know. I mean, I knew these characters. I could have kept it bottled up. But like the point for me was that it was I wanted to share it because I think it's important um, because I had a pain growing up and I still experience this dissonance. And it's so uncomfortable when you know you're in a place. I'm an incredibly light skinned woman. Am I white passing? No. But like I'm a very light skinned woman and I present and speak in a way that things normally go my way. Um, and like I'm aware of that. And yet in the same space, I've heard incredibly racist things directed towards me. So it's like. I, I, I wanted to connect this love of art and this love of history with that message of agency and empowerment and rage that I feel. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it's a, a healthy and, you know, hopefully fulfilling and it feels fulfilling yeah. outlet for that. Um, and I want to share it. So that's what I recognized was important for me. And not everybody feels that way. And I don't think any one thing is better than the other. Some people, they don't care if they ever get published. And like, that's, that's beautiful. For me, I know if I if that weren't published, I wouldn't have written it. Um, you know, if I could have you know gone back in time. Like um, the goal was to goal have this out in the world and share this. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. 100%, 100%. Mm -hmm. And I'm so comfortable saying it. I feel no shame in saying like I wanted this to get published because right. like I want to see a black girl in a petticoat. Like I want, like I want to see it, and I want other women to see it because I. And she looks good. <laughs> Julie, she looks damn fine. And I wanted the world to see it. So, I, and I, fortunately, it, I've succeeded in that. Yeah, um, it's chaotic. It's I've got a lot of different identities, but 
but make it work. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's, it must also feel really great personally to channel so much of your own questioning and like yeah. thinking about yourself, um, your race, your sexuality, your yeah. womanhood, and just put it into this vessel and be like, here, people, this is what I'm wrestling with. And, and, and also giving it this other time and place so we can really look at that kind of a complete history of those issues in, in terms of what Zoe Seebeck's thinking about now. Right. Um, so what are you thinking about next? Can you tell us about the next I'm not allowed. I'm not allowed, but um, I, this will hopefully not be a one-off and, uh, and, and there will be more books from me. Um, but um, I, you know, I just want people to, to buy it and I want people to love it. And uh, you know, is it a part of my very soul? Maybe. So do I take it personally if you walk past it, don't buy it? I don't know. Um, but I has, yeah. How has that been to be a debut author? Um, it's gotta be a fragile kind of moment. It's because you're, you're also, I mean, again, kind of exciting. I don't, I don't lead with like the author identity personally. So mm -hmm. I, I feel like I don't tap into some of the other, my insecurities sometimes can feel different. Um, I have no, you know, I don't necessarily feel vulnerable, you know, because I, I write. Um, sometimes it can feel intrusive, um, even though I just said I wanted to get published and I wanted people to read it. But, you know, sometimes there is an innate kind of sense of like when people I know kind of casually mess with me, I read your book, it was great. It's like, like, you, you know, like you read my book, like, don't, that's private. Like, don't, <laughs> you can't say that if you want to be. I know, like, don't, don't tell me, like, just, just do it. You know? But it, it does feel there because this book, and I don't, I will never write another book like this again. I mean, there's the inner, I mean, the only thing she was missing was being a Jew, you know, and then it would have been. Oh, let's book. do that one. Do that I'm one. Jew, the black bisexual. Yes. <laughs> Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> I, we got nine out of 10. Right. But, you know, it, it, it feels so much like me. Um, and it's so much of myself kind of vomited into, you know, onto paper. So mm -hmm. it, it's been surreal and you feel a pressure to be thankful all the time. And you are, but you're also just like, you feel raw. I feel raw all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, having these conversations with all of these people kind of over and over again, and them asking me these questions and, and I'm, I benefit from the fact that I love to talk. I do love talking about it, but it's like, this is an innately like personal process mm. that you then set, you know, just like writing a play or doing a performance on a stage. It's the same space of feeling, you know, yes, I want you to look at me, but don't see me, just look yeah. at me. And, and that's how I feel almost all of the time mm -hmm. um, is that, oh, that's actually, that was actually pretty good. Okay, this is good mm -hmm. therapy, thank you, Julie. You but it's, yeah, and use that. You can use that in the next interview. Oh, now you've got a new one. Literally, <laughs> but it's like you want to be. Yeah. You want to, people to look at you and to, mm -hmm. to admire you and to validate you. But to be seen mm. is uncomfortable. Um, mm. But that's why this book helped me grow so much personally because it was mm -hmm. like BLM was happening. I like watched the National Guard go. I mean, we had a fascist, we had a, we, you know, fascist, narcissistic, insane loony who was running the country. And and you know, Trumpism is now going to be you know an indelible, permanent fixture in American culture. You know, it's a scar. And so it's like I'm processing what it means to be anti-racist, what it means to take responsibility, what it means to be an ally, and understanding you know hypocrisy within the liberal institution, like all of these things and being able to understand them and process them in a way that not only is profitable, like, yeah, it's cool, but in a way that like I can package and share so that maybe people either it resonates or it teaches. Um, and so I wrote a book. <laughs> I feel like when you say um, that you want to be looked at but not seen, I do think about being Sylvie, being por having her portrait done in that um, for the revolution, the you know being kind of a, a muse, symbol, like a, a muse, symbol, yeah. right? Um, and the way that art does do that—it's it's you, but not you. And right. It's reflecting something back um, and showing you know showing us also as a reader what I bring to your novel is different than what another person might bring or a black person will bring or you know just a man will bring so all of these diversity you go a man a man, a man. <laughs> <laughs> we don't 
Um, but so next, um, like, do we have any questions? I've been talking so long. I haven't had time for Jane to bring us any um, questions from the audience. Let's take one as we wrap this up. Yeah. Jane, you got something for us? You can put it up. Oh, yeah. Are you working on another book yet? I, I, I can't. I'm not allowed, unfortunately. Yeah, that's what I'm in that. I'm in that gross position where you're just like, no, yeah. like I'm, not, you know, you know the drill. Right. Uh, you guys are professionals. But I feel like you said something that I read elsewhere about um, your interest in the like Western civilization continuing that kind of dialogue oh, I, with that. That's my space. That's where I, grew, I mean, I was raised European, by yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I was raised by white Jews. So it's like, I'm not gonna, I, I, and it's not my responsibility just because I'm, you know, dark to be like, I'm gonna write a story about, you know, it's only, it's going to be in Ghana. Like, what? I've never been to Ghana. I'm not, you know, Ghanaian. Right. Like, that would not make sense. Um, right. And that's not my place. I, I was raised with the white culture and European culture, and that's what I know. Um, and Southeast Asian. Again, that's not my space. I can't write that. You know, mm -hmm. I may have grown up with it, but that's not my space. So again, I'm, I'm very cognizant of it. And so my, my books will always feature diversity in traditionally white spaces. That's, that is my shtick. That is not, I'm not gonna break away from that um, because I have found this book has taught me that that's what I want. I can't imagine writing something that doesn't come from a space of being diverse in some meaningful way, whether it being you know, a person of color or, or being queer, because those are the two identities that I will write from. You know, I can't imagine not writing in that space because how many wonderful periods and courts and, and estates and, and, and cities have seen people of color walk their halls. And we just pretend that, no, black people were shipped on a boat and then bam, they showed up in 1965. No, they have been and, ha and will continue to be fundamentally a part of the fabric of Western Europe. Um, and and it's ju I just want to keep informing that. Okay, we have another one last question. What other historical fiction authors do you like, read, etc.? So uh, Maggie O'Farrell, um, mm -hmm. I love, also Madeline Miller, it, I know it's not technically historical, but it, it she evokes so much of what I want to be. Um, mm -hmm. And I call it feminine rage. Cersei is like my spirit book. <laughs> I, I, we laugh, but like I, she, when she articulates that rage, I'm like, lose it. That's the good stuff. <laughs> Stuff, Maddie. Uh, so I, I love, I love her so much. Uh, Vanessa Riley. Mm -hmm. uh, I really encourage everybody if you have any interest in the Haitian Revolution and want to expand in that space. Uh, she just came out. I think it's like Mother Woman uh, or Mother Sister Warrior, um, which is excellent. Um, I, yeah, I, I haven't been reading as much this summer just because of the transition um, from graduating, right. getting a job, a book comes out. So don't shame me too much, please. No. But, um, You've more than answered the question. Have you read um, The Mercies by any chance? That the Mercies, no, but I was actually, when I, I put it on my list, did you enjoy it? Oh, yeah. And it has some of that kind of stuff that we're talking about. Um, and, you know, witch trials, right. um, queerness, and and men not behaving well. Um, <laughs> how's that for, for, your, for a review? <laughs> that is such a, but isn't that like, I, that's my favorite thing. It's like, yeah, it's normally men, but just like people not behaving well. It is a, isn't that just like the foundational like intersection of like good literature? It's just yeah. gay people. Yeah. Like Sylvia's yes. not great. Like she, um, yes. like she, like she's not, she, she owns like, like, you know what I mean? Like that's yeah. not great. Yeah. That's hard to imagine a heroine and, and she, does she redeem herself? That's a discussion. Right. Like, I don't know. Right. Um, so I, I think that's fascinating. Like most of the novels that I think really love are where you just see really just evil, titrated evil. Mm -hmm. Ooh, what kinds of books would you like to write in the future? Um, well, I'm sorry, am I allowed to answer? Or do we yeah, have to? Re yeah, answer it. It's your question well, for you. So this is, you know, like I was saying before, like I, this is what I'm going to write. It's going to be, maybe it might not always be women, um, I'm pretty sure it's going to predominantly be women just because that's the voice. I think they're more fun. Um, but it, it's going to be some diverse space in a place where you think you wouldn't find them. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, there were, there were no, you know, 
Renaissance, you know, England, there are no black people there. I'm like, oh, <laughs> wait, <laughs> you know, so it's like, that's a, I pulled out right. a book. Please don't look for that book. I don't have it. Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, my, that's kind of where I'm going to be always writing from. It's going to be a place that you think you know because right. of media, really publicized, really romanticized, well, you know, understood. Mm-hmm. But then I'm going to be like, but there is a black person there. Right. Um, or there is right. a really gay person there, you know, um, or this woman had a lot more power than you think she did. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think we're really quick to to try to fit our historical perceptions through a mesh screen. And um, yeah, women were X, Y, and Z, but like people always have agency. It's just how they choose to exercise it. And that's where it gets interesting. You may not respect it because you have your own constructs of what power looks like. Um, but I would argue, and I'm getting like anthropological here, but like, that's what agency is about. It's not about like, it doesn't look the same in every culture. Um, and so that's the beauty of like identifying where women or, or whatever, you know, a POC or queer person finds their power and finds that autonomy and what they choose to do with it. Um, so those are going to be my books in the future, kind of vague, but I, you no, can't, we got know. it. That's what a Zoe Seaback book is going to be. We <laughs> yes. totally it's great that you have, even if you can't tell us about the next one or you don't know what the third one is going to be, there is something really driving you um, that's going to lead you to that next story. And so I am going to hold this book up one more time and tell everybody to read Mademoiselle Revolution. And thank you, Zoe, for being here today with us. Well, I should say tonight with us for yes. Mighty Blaze and Zeitgeist. I love it. Um, it was so much fun to talk to you. So much fun. Everybody go and buy this. You can get it at bookshop.org, at the Mighty Blaze bookstore, Please. or wherever books are sold. I like the Mazel Tov from Josh Gershik. <laughs> Mazel. Hi, Josh Gershik. Thank you. No, I love it. I, love, I got a lot of reasons for comments. And yeah, best of best of luck to you and good luck with the next phase after graduation. And thank you. On. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. My adventure fantasy novels, Herrick's End and Herrick's Lie, books one and two of the Neath trilogy, are available now if you want to check them out. Tune in next time for season eight, episode 11, featuring a mighty blaze's own Jane Roper, discussing her debut novel, The Society of Shame. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning. (music) 